Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very unique opportunity. I'm very proud to have this opportunity to speak with April Ryan. She is White House correspondent and Washington Bureau Chief for American Urban Radio. CNN just announced that they have hired April Ryan as political analyst. April brings to us a 30-year journalistic background and has been the White House correspondent for 20 years for American Urban Radio Networks, covering three U.S. presidents who have called her by her name. She is also the Washington Bureau Chief, along with responsibilities at the White House. Ryan hosts a daily feature, The White House Report, which is broadcast to AURN's nearly 300 affiliated stations nationwide. She is regularly featured on political news shows and is a frequent speaker around the country. Amongst the many books that she has in her literary career, her first book, The Presidency in Black and White, was published in 2015, and her latest deposit on the literary journey includes At Mama's Knee, just released a powerful, powerful book that is forwarded by Chris Matthews. Welcome, April. We're so glad to have you. Oh, you don't know how amazing it is to sit before you and have you question me. <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. The shoe's on the other foot today, I, isn't it? It's amazing, but I thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm glad to have you. You have really had a tremendous journey. We were talking just a moment ago before we started recording about where you started mm. in radio stations mm-hmm. in Baltimore. Yes. Tell us about that beginning. Well, I'm a product of Baltimore. I still live in the area. I love my city. Yes. Regardless of what you think or what people may think, you know, Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods and community. It's a city of survival. Mm -hmm. And it could go either way for a lot of people. And I am a product of a city that loved me. Mm -hmm. And I'm a product of Morgan State University. Morgan State University I credit them with starting my journey in broadcasting. My late mother toiled there for 42 and a half years until her death. And as a daughter of work at Morgan, I just wound up attending Morgan. But I always wanted to be in broadcasting. I wanted to be on TV, but it didn't work out. But I used what was accessible to me at Morgan, a radio station there, WEAA. And I was fascinated with the Sunday gospel programs. Oh, really? I wanted to spin music for the Sunday gospel programs. <laughs> but that didn't work out. So I wound up doing the Sunday night program, late night programs, and doing some programs during the day on Fridays um, between classes. Mm-hmm. So I said, I need to expand my horizons a little bit more. I ventured out, and I worked at WEBB in Baltimore. It used to be owned by James Brown. Amazing. Yes. And um, when I started, I was making $5 an hour. And, well, when I started at WEAA, my first program director was Kwaisi Fume. Oh, really? Former Maryland congressman and head of the NAACP. Absolutely. And then when I went to WEBB, one of my bosses happened to be, who is now the current mayor of Baltimore, Kathy Pugh. Wow. (laughs) This is crazy. And she was actually my mother's student worker at Morgan. Amazing. So it's just amazing how life is cyclical in so many ways. I was spinning music, and I said I wanted to do more. And I worked at a gospel station in Baltimore called WBGR, Mm -hmm. and I started news announcing. And it progressed from there. I went to Frederick, Maryland, Chattanooga, Washington, back to Baltimore, you know. And I did a little bit of dabbling in Baltimore, Washington for a while, and then I got this gig. And everywhere I laid my mic down, 
I would always freelance. I would freelance to the networks. And AURN, American Urban Radio Networks, really saw something in me. And the piece that really made them say, we need to bring her in, is when the NAACP was going through a lot of turmoil with Mm -hmm. them. At the time, the head was um, Dr. Ben Chavis. Mm -hmm. And um, I broke a lot of stories out of that. And that really put me in the position where I am today as White House correspondent for American Urban Radio Networks 20 years later. Yeah, but that, that is quite a leap. I mean, you, <laughs> you broke into a stratosphere that very, very few people get to make to go from spinning records and then running the station and then doing freelance to where you are now. I was young, very young. And you know, when you're young, you say, oh, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. If I knew then what I know now, I may not have. But, you know, I thank God that— I just said, okay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. I thank God because if I had not, who knows? I mean, and one thing that I can say, it's not a lot of me in those first few rows, okay? okay right. And when I say a lot of me, you have a lot of the networks who are there who deal with the issues mm-hmm. of the day. They're really a hypersensitive group that kind of feeds on one story. But there are other stories mm-hmm. in this nation and around the world. Right. And when I first came, people thought I was militant because I was asking about issues of the least of these, Mm -hmm. race and other dynamics that people would not necessarily see above the fold of the newspaper or in the A block of the news until there was a crescendo moment. And I earned my stripes. Let's talk about that. I want to talk about those stripes Mm -hmm. because there are stripes along the Mm -hmm. way. (laughs) You don't get there without struggle (laughs) and without bruises. Many of them have to go unnamed and unmentioned for the benefit of being positioned where Mm -hmm. you are. I wondered when I looked over your career, when you look at the stripes you earned, did they come more often because you were a woman or because you were black or both? I'm going to say both, and I'm going to say this. Washington, D.C. is a very unique town. You've got the real part of Washington where people live, but then you have that federal quadrant Mm -hmm. that makes the world move. That quadrant is still considered a white male-dominated area. Even though we had a black president, it was still a white male-dominated area. And I think back in history about this. I think back— on the late Helen Thomas, who said, you know, when she was first reporting at the White House, she could be a member of the White House Correspondents Association, that big dinner every mm-hmm. year, which is actually coming up. And you could be a member for 25 cents. Mm-hmm. Women could. But guess what? You could not go to the dinner. You could be a member of the association, but you couldn't go to the dinner. They asked President Kennedy to boycott the dinner to let women come in. Wow. Yeah. That I- recently? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, when you start thinking about women's yes. rights, you don't date it up with President Kennedy. Right, right. But that's for white women. Listen to this. Mm-hmm. Over 70 years ago, there was a gentleman by the name of Harry McAlpin. He was covering news for black people, mm-hmm. black media. And he wanted to go into a press conference. And the white reporters at the time said, no, 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 no. You shouldn't come in because if you step on a reporter's shoes, there would be a riot. Mm. Yeah. So the president at that time, I believe it was Truman, he said, look, he said, come on in. He welcomed him. And at the time, it was I'm, I'm getting it mixed up. I think it was Truman. But either way, the president of the United States was mm-hmm. the one who broke the barrier. Wow. Over 70 years ago. So this town is still very um, institutionalized. It still deals with 
what was set up hundreds of years ago with our founding fathers. Right. And when you are not a man, mm-hmm. when you're not white, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're a woman and minority, it's 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 harder. It's harder to break into those those meetings and those events. But you know what? I give myself a lot of credit because over 20 years, I have received information that other people couldn't. Right. I've talked to presidents. I've been called by name by these presidents. The last three presidents in the major. Well, yeah. Now the fourth, now the yeah, fourth one. Yeah, who I think says that he enjoys watching me on TV. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> After he asked me to um, bring the Congressional Black Caucus together. Yeah, I yeah. saw that. That was amazing. We're, we're going to yeah. talk about that. Yeah. You know, several years ago, I did an interview in Australia and having interacted briefly and mm-hmm. far less formally than you have with the last three presidents, they asked me, what had I known? noticed about them that were similar. And I said, it is my view that each of them came to Washington to change Washington, Mm -hmm. but in some way before it was over, Washington changed them. Yes. Okay. So whether you're talking about President Clinton, President Bush, or President Obama, Mm -hmm. there is a maturation process through which uh, any administration evolves and finds its footing and finds out what works and what doesn't work. Right. Would you agree with that statement, first of all? I agree. I believe that these presidents, particularly the last three that I've covered prior to this one, they came in with the hope of doing better for the country. But Mm -hmm. there is so much that's already indoctrinated, set in stone, that it's hard to move. And, you know, they talk about, oh, we're going to reach across the aisle, but ultimately it doesn't happen. It's gotten worse over the years. And the people who suffer are the American people, you know, the back and forth and the fighting. And I think, you know, you come in here with the idea of I'm going to help the people, I'm going to help the people. But politics, the game of politics, the politics of politics, a lot of times (laughs) wins out. And that's interesting. And for this president, I've seen, and it's not even 100 days yet. It feels like it's been three or four years. We heard all of this on the road when mm-hmm. he was trying to gain the Oval Office. Drain the swamp. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, he's draining his own inner circle, it looks like. We heard all of this rhetoric, and now that he's in office, I'm seeing a turn, a shift. This is a different Donald Trump, foreign policy, and just some of the other things that he's saying. There are still remnants. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but I'm seeing how Washington— it's changing, changing mm-hmm. this businessman because the nation wanted something different. They didn't necessarily know what the difference was, mm-hmm. but they didn't want something that was establishment. Right. But the nation is also crying out, and he's listening. He's shifting a bit. You know, to our listeners, you're listening at April Ryan. I have the privilege, T.D. Jakes, of talking with her. She, one of her literary contributions is the presidency in black and white. It puts in perspective three presidents who were predecessors to President Trump. As mm-hmm. So she has a myriad of experience to talk about this. When you look at that maturation process and you look at this particular administration. Is there something unique about this fourth presidency that you now watch that is totally separate and apart from the maturation from uh, both Democrats and Republicans historically? And if so, what is that? Everything about this president is totally different from the last three. You cannot lump him in with them. 
you know, we would say, oh, Clinton is different from Bush. Bush is different from Obama. But this president, everything about him from his inner circle to who he is, to his efforts to reach the American people after he watches a TV show and going on Twitter <laughs> and setting the world upside down. Right. Really. And that's what he's done. He is different in every way from how he takes his weekends. You know, he talked about President Obama in golfing, but we find that he's going to Mar-a-Lago and going to Virginia and golfing. And, and meet, he says he has meetings on the golf course, but we're seeing shots of him actually at the golf course. We see a businessman who tried to make business approaches to social issues. Mm-hmm. And whereas you had the other presidents who were using governance to change, mm-hmm. he brought in new people because people did not want the old establishment. But there is somewhat of an outcry against this. And he's listening, though, because he's making changes and shifts to, I guess, react to the negative Uh, reactions that he gets. We see that he watches the news. He's keenly aware of what people are saying and who people are, particularly in that press room. And he watches the briefings. You know, one of the things that I find most interesting that this current administration brings to the table, that there is a huge disconnect, not only between how things in Washington are done and this current administration, but the whole political sphere of people seems to have a different mindset and a different language from what is going on in the streets of America. Mm. We think in terms of Democrats and Republicans and, and conservatives and liberals. Yeah. But I find it ironic that the same people who voted for Obama were many of the same people who voted for President Trump. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that they are jumping back and forth across the lines of how we describe them. Yeah. They're voting for change, I think. And you're exactly right. And I noticed this again. When people voted for President Obama, I think it was deeper than just the race issue. Mm-hmm. He was this newcomer Mm -hmm. that was not tainted. The perception he was not tainted by Washington. He was on the fast track to rise. And he had not been here long enough to be indoctrinated into the rituals of how things are done. He was this maverick. He was mavericky, as I would say, for Sarah Palin. (laughs) Um, He was a maverick Mm -hmm. on the scene, someone that— brought hope and change. And people were looking for that. And I believe it was more so that than the color. But he happened to be wrapped in this brown package. Right. I believe he was the first piece of this change that this nation was looking for. And then Donald Trump was the next change. People are looking for something. They don't know what they're looking for, but they know that they don't want it the same way it's been going for a long time. They want their services, but they don't want to have to pay as much for their services. Mm -hmm. And then when you talk about fiscal conservatives, it's interesting that they brought into the fold— this man who was not a Republican. Albeit begrudgingly. Yes. <laughs> yes. And he was saying the right things, mm-hmm. you know. We're going to build this wall. You know, the immigration system is a problem mm-hmm. in this nation. But it's got to be fixed. But is this wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for the answer? He put the issue on the table, but his solution and formula may not be right for everyone. But he did put the issue on the table. Now, what remains to be seen is how it's fixed. Why is it 
that it seems that there is more galvanized strength around things like building the wall than it is fixing the immigration system that makes it necessary for people to have to sneak into the country. I don't see as much strength and will to fix the issue that causes people in desperation to have to take laws into their own hands. But do you know what it stems from? And I believe a lot of this is some of the reason for the rise of number 45, Mm -hmm. which some call him, and I call him President Donald J. Trump. I believe it's the fear of the other Mm -hmm. because he talked about the immigration issue and keeping people out. He talked about radical Islam. Mm -hmm. And there is still a large portion of the society that still doesn't understand that everyone that is involved in the immigration issue is not all Mexican. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the wall. It's about people overstaying their visas, a lot of it. Right. And then when you talk about radical Islam, people don't realize there have been surveys and, and studies that have shown that many people from other countries who are Muslim find that they do better here in this country than in their own country, and they don't like it themselves. And they are now targets because of all of this rhetoric about Muslims and about um, the radical nature of the jihadist movement. So I think there is a lot of misunderstanding. I don't think I know. And it's ginned up with rhetoric And people are afraid, and we've seen this before, people are afraid of what they don't know and the other. There's a lot of fear. Yeah. There's fear everywhere on both sides of every issue and unrest that that I'm seeing like never before. But you mentioned something about rhetoric. I want to go back and underscore this very interview that I'm having with you today was delayed a little bit because Sean Spicer's trying to do some damage control over his comparison between Assad and Hitler and arbitrarily or accidentally, I should say, brought us some shining light and glaring light and criticism from the Jewish community as it seemed to misinterpret the real understanding of Hitler and Holocaust. You just left from hearing him do some damage control and retraction, as it were, of those statements. I call it the apology tour. (laughs) What was that like? Um, Sean, I don't know where he got the information from or why he even brought it up. He actually threw himself in the hole. He actually dug his own hole and threw himself in. And we were like, what? I mean, it was just a question that someone asked about chemical warfare, chemical weapons with Syria. And he starts making this correlation. And there are people who are saying that there were reports out there. But you never, never, ever discuss Hitler, compare Hitler. What Hitler did was atrocious. Six million people. And it is said there's so many atrocities that have happened in our history. And people think, oh, it's we can just talk about it. People are still trying to heal. The healing process has yet to finish. And for him to do that was wrong. But I mean, I, I believe he in earnest that he's sorry. You don't normally hear a press secretary say, I'm sorry. He's very contrite. He's gone on Greta Van Susteren. He, he went on Wolf Blitzer mm-hmm. on CNN, which I find very interesting because this president calls CNN very fake news. Right. <laughs> and I said, wow, this is interesting. So he's very apologetic for his inartful uh, expression or language yesterday. But um, we have to see how long he lasts. There's a big conversation right now about who is 
going to remain and who may be told to leave. That was pretty ugly. And this president does not like distractions anymore. It's not cute. He doesn't like it. And he wants to shine. He wants his message to get out. And when you have that overshadowing him, there's a problem. That's with any president. So 83, 84 days in, this is a very bad problem. And and you already have people questioning the relationship with with Israel Mm -hmm. and the rise of anti-Semitic crimes. And then for him to say this, people are at a holy time, Passover. Right, right. It's just very, um, very uh, bad. They're questioning a lot of things. They're questioning the relationship with Israel. They're questioning his relationship with Russia. A lot of things are being questioned. I want to dig a little bit deeper in just a moment with Sean and your reaction to uh, his propensity to kind of point you out in some ways that I want to understand better. You know, we were all shocked, first of all, by the Congressional Black Caucus statement when you referred to the CBC. And, first and it just of all, keeps happening, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and didn't know what it meant. And then the backlash that you got. And then there was a statement where he, he comes along and says, stop shaking your head. I actually dropped my head. And then when he said something, I shook a little bit because I was like, no, that's not. But, you know. I mean, it was the kind of condescending thing that I would say to a five-year-old child. I saw what went on outside of you. What was going on inside of you? How much discipline has it taken for you to remain professional up under that kind of assault? <laughs> Bishop Jakes, he said, under that kind of assault. Well, it's, that's what it looked like on television. I don't know. Okay. Was it an assault? But, you know, Bishop Jakes, that's that's a very good piece. I, it must have been pretty bad because I'm sitting in front of you today. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, seriously, We are all now on display in that room, and it's sad. I mean, the briefings have always been on camera, but they have not always been carried live every day from beginning to end. And we are all now cognizant of our facial expressions. And I have determined and decided because I don't have a face to bluff. I'm just, I wear everything on my sleeve. So I said, I have to go numb. And I've Tried to go. I mean, I'm after what I've been through for the last couple since October. I've been able to kind of go numb on things. Um, but have you in the past? Oh, you've covered three administrations prior to this one. Oh, I had an incident with Robert Gibbs. <laughs> okay, when President Obama came into the Oval Office, and and it was the first state dinner with the Indian president, and. Um, what happened was the Salahis, um, the, the reality show stars, came into the White House, and it wasn't about them getting there. It was about the fact of security. You have the first black president. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of um, death threats. Mm-hmm. This Indian leader already had death threats on his life. He's already had issues, you know, that caused heightened security. You know, his life was already in jeopardy. And then you're going to allow these people to come in and then say, you know, oh, well, we're doing this this way and that way. I have been there long enough to see what happens and what's supposed to happen. And there's something to be said for institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. So when they kept coming back and saying this, that, I was like, "Mm, that's not how it happened. But because of those questions, they changed the process back to what it used to be and also even added extra layers of security because they realized people were trying to get in to be close to this iconic president. And when these people came in, yeah, they didn't have any metal or organic materials on them to cause a threat. But, you know, they had their hands. And you can 
you're close enough right. to these leaders. You could do who who's to say? So that was my first incident with a press secretary, and it was public. It went viral. Wow. Um, so I was like, okay. But then when this happened, and I've known Sean for a while, but I understand Sean is, and this is where I understand, Sean is the press secretary for this president. He has to be loyal to this president. And that's what Robert Gibbs ultimately told me later on. He said, Robert Gibbs told me this, I have to make you look crazy because I have to be loyal to Desiree Rogers. How difficult is that, especially with a president, with the personality that President Trump has? Just how would you imagine how difficult that is to manage the polarities? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a tough job. But, you know, at the same time, I have a job, too. Right. I have to ask questions. He's got a very tough job. And I understood what he was doing from the moment. And I'm just sitting there watching. I'm like, OK. And I'm explaining. But. What rang so true in my head, what my mother always would tell me, and I'm so glad for the trials that I've had in my life because I remember, my mother would say, it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. Mm -hmm. And he was laying it. I'm like, I am a mother of two children. I'm like, you know, I know who I am, you know. And as I was saying earlier, you know, when people come to hug me, I don't want to hug. I'm okay. I'm not fragile because I know what he was doing and everyone else sees what he did. But the bottom line is, if you but want to do something for me, you pray for me. Here's the struggle for me. He does have a terribly tough job. <laughs> you know, I would rather be cleaning the streets of New York than doing what wow. he's doing. It's a very tough job to balance all of those issues. And he has to show his loyalty to this president who is watching the briefing, who has not always necessarily been so gung-ho on him. <laughs> so a lot of this is to show this president that he's tough. But I get that. But it seems like to me his greatest altercations have come through unnecessary statements. It was unnecessary. I mean, it was the simplest question. Just how do you change your image in the midst of all of this going on? Right. You know, you've got people calling. I mean, the second weekend, people calling for him to be impeached. You've got Russia investigate, FBI investigation on the Hill. It's just controversy swirling overhead, period. And, you know, the president was saying, you know, at that first press conference, you know, we're a fine-tuned machine. No, you're not. You know you're not. There are problems. There are leaks. There, I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on. And that was a simple question. And then he beat me up over some. It didn't have to go there. It was amazing to me to watch it. I watched various spokespersons. I remember Ari Flesher and his role yeah. with the Bush administration. It, there was a finesse about how he would handle some of the most complicated statements that I don't see Sean finding his sea legs. It's interesting you talked about the Bush administration former press secretary in that Bush administration actually emailed me right after it happened and said, I would have never treated you that way. And I said, I know you wouldn't have. But, um, you know, I've been there for 20 years. I'll be there when he leaves, and I'll be there when the next one comes in. So I take it for the moment. I cannot, in order to keep my sanity, in order to understand that I am not what they call me, I have to look at it for what it is. He's trying to impress his boss. He's trying to impress their base because I'm viewed as, number one, I'm press. I'm the enemy. I'm the opposition party. But two, 
the thought is I'm the black woman who is in the resistance. and all, But that's not the case. I'm just a journalist. I'm a reporter asking a question. I totally get it. You know, we were talking earlier and you were talking about bringing up the kinds of stories that you would like to do that are not always necessarily the stories that are attractive to mm-hmm. the editors and the press yeah. bureaucrats who, who sit in positions of power and make decisions. And yet you want to become a voice for the voiceless, the underserved, yeah. and to be able to yeah. be effective. I get that. I understand that. And I think most black people who find themselves with an opportunity like that Mm -hmm. or Latino people who have a community to represent feel an onus and a responsibility to get their voice out there Mm -hmm. and be heard. Uh, That's a very, very important thing. But I wonder, what is it like sometimes the pressure from your community now that you have arrived to have certain expectations of you? And then to have the pressure to prove that though you are black, you can competently talk about any issue. I got in trouble with Sean for asking about Russia. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can ask about China. I can ask about Iran. I can ask about Iraq. That's the thing. I am not just all about the black news. It's Mm -hmm. one minute on the Twitter. You'll see people, oh, all you do is ask about race and you're a race baiter. And then they get mad. Oh, it's Russia, Russia, Russia. You know. You can't win for losing. You can't win. But see, that's the thing. I can ask everything. But when those first two or three rows, I'm in the third row, smack dab in the middle. But when those first two rows ask questions, they're not asking the other questions that I want to answer to. And sometimes I'll ask about the mainstream issues if I'm not hearing the answer that I really need to hear for a question that's burning. So I may ask that and I'll ask another one. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a couple of questions that are right now in my lap that mm-hmm. I'm dealing with. We've got Jeff Sessions, the new Attorney General. Mm-hmm. I screamed out the questions to him the day before. Actually, Sean told me to stop shaking my head. <laughs> and you have the new Attorney General, and you've got all these dissent decree issues going on from the Obama administration as we used our cell phones to show the accountability piece Mm -hmm. that it's not myth and conjecture anymore that some of our young black men are actually being killed by police. Some women are being killed by police. So this accountability piece is in jeopardy now. Then we have this piece that's still on the table. I talked to this, this mother whose heart is yearning for justice for her son. Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, Mm -hmm. who called out 11 times, I can't breathe, in a chokehold by New York police. No accountability yet for that incident. That is a question for Jeff Sessions and this Trump administration as they are supporting the police. But what happens when there's still these issues that are still in the gray area? Why, why, why do they project this ideology, sometimes on both sides, that if you cry out when there is a poorly executed justice from mm-hmm. police officers, mm-hmm. that that means that you are not loyal to police officers, that you either have to choose black or blue. And that's terrible. It's terrible. And we are all America. We know police officers. I'm sure you have many police officers in your congregation Absolutely. that you pray over. I have police officers in my family. I almost married one. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't hate police. I mean, matter of fact, my aunt and uncle, my elderly aunt and uncle were shot in Baltimore in broad daylight last year. And 
the police officers, they didn't even know at the time that they were my relatives. And my uncle, my 82-year-old uncle at the time was taking his 92-year-old sister to the store after they were doing business, taking care of her business, her daily business. And they were walking into the sub shop to get food and shots rang out. But by the grace of God, the angel's wings blocked it because my aunt had a graze across her head. She went down. Mm. It could have been it could have been another way. My uncle was shot in the leg. It went straight through, no bones broken, didn't have to have surgery. God moved on that. But I'm going to say this. Those police officers made it a point. They were upset with what happened to the elderly. You don't mess with elderly and children. Mm-hmm. I support the Baltimore Police Department. I support them. But when they're wrong, they're wrong. When something happens, they're wrong. But I support because if my car breaks down, I'm calling you. Right. You know, if, if there's a stranger around my house, I'm calling you. Right. I support police. But we call out. We want weeding out of bad policing. What's wrong with that? Right. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's not an either or for him. I mean, he he makes it an either or. It's like no gray matter. And, and that's the piece I think that I pray he doesn't have to get involved with another shooting where he's going to have to really face this. But there are also other issues like, you know, he's dealing with the HBCU issue. Mm-hmm. He had this executive order. The HBCU presidents went to the White House thinking they were going to get all this money. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They got a nice picture. Kellyanne Conway's feet were in the sofa. God bless her. Um, <laughs> they got a really nice picture. And they got a pen from the signing, but no new money. And the reason why this is important this day, today, Bennett College, one of the only two um, HBCUs that serve, totally serve, just serve women Mm -hmm. students, just have women, female students. Bennett College right now is looking for $4.5 million by June so that they can continue. Just to stay afloat. To stay afloat. The reason that's important is 70% of educated African-Americans are graduating from HBCUs. Also, we have Mm -hmm. to understand that it is cheaper to educate than it is to incarcerate. How about that? So if we're going to change the trend, we have Mm -hmm. to understand that not only is it morally responsible, Mm -hmm. it is also fiscally responsible for us to do the right thing and get behind these universities. And that's what I'm saying. So the wonderful front two rows, you know, they've got all these other questions to ask, but who's asking these questions? These are pressing issues in a community that still has the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category. So I say this to say I'm not an activist. I'm not an activist journalist, but these are real issues. And if you are the leader of the free world, if you're the president of the United States, everything comes to you from war to peace and everything in between. Those two items just there are in between. And you are dealing with these. You're talking policing. You're talking education. You're talking infrastructure. You're talking jobs and employment. Why not? But it seems to be consistent that there is no strategy to the Trump administration's credit. They are the first Republican leadership to really bring up the subject of some of the plight in the black community. But once he brings it up, okay, it doesn't normally get on the radar. CBC, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Didn't know what that was. But once it gets Mm -hmm. on the radar, we visit some churches and we go and we make some statements, make some promises while we're campaigning. And now— That seems to be consistent across all fronts 
not strategy infrastructure. Is that coming from him or the people that he has selected hmm. to become the task force beneath him? I don't know how to interpret that. What does it look like to you? Uh, you know, this president is keenly aware of what's going on. He's on the Twitter and watching the news. But there are some other things that the shows that, you know, he watches Fox a lot. He watches MSNBC, he watches CNN, and he's on Twitter. But there are some things that don't make the radar. Now, the people who are with him are supposed to have the pulse of the community. They're supposed to feed him. But we are still a reactionary nation. When something happens, that's when we react. Oh, this is a sin. Why is this this way? But there are people out here. That's one of the reasons why he needs to meet with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. That's one of the reasons why he needs to meet with the Congressional Black Caucus. To his credit, he did give, I believe it's $100 million in grant monies to Flint, Michigan in March. And guess what? We're just finding out about it now. That's terrible. Wow. Yeah. But he did give the monies. Why was that message held up? Well, let me say this. I'm thinking back to the Bush years. Okay. Carl Rove said something to me and some other people said something at the time. That president at the time was the president who did more for Africa than any other president. Mm-hmm. But they didn't put the message out because our base, the black base, was not with him. Right. And they said, well, you know— Black people don't care because they don't like him. That is a major issue, though. Why not promote it? But you isn't lost it the opposite, the- <laughs> that if they heard more about what was actually going on, it would change public perception? But I'm not seeing any president move into office and be effective at getting their message out once they got into office. It's a communications piece, and that's a problem. You have to use your communication staff in a way that it's not just about legacy. You want people to feel that they are being heard. You want people to know that you are doing something for them. And Obama even had this problem. Absolutely, His communications piece was not good because he had to sell the Affordable Care Act after it passed because people were like, huh-huh. They didn't know. His communications team did not effectively put the message out. You've got to put the message out for people to feel comfortable and embrace it. Is it that they don't put it out or when they put it out and it goes out on the wire, it doesn't get covered? <sighs> yeah. That's I'm some wondering. of it too, but I but I'm gonna tell you something. EPA, but the statement was like I think it was three seventeen seventeen. I was like, why am I just seeing this now? That's amazing, especially when the money's so desperately needed in Flint desperately. And, by and, black and white people yes. across the board, Democrats and Republicans suffering. Mm-hmm. And not only that, that is the tip of the iceberg for the infrastructure all over the country that is corroded, hasn't been overhauled mm-hmm. for hundreds of years almost now, and we're gonna end up in a crisis situation where Flint is gonna morph into cities all over this country. Former Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox in the Obama administration said, you know, he feels like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling. He said, because these roads and bridges are so old. He said, it's just a matter of time. It's not if, but when. Right. Right, and nobody's doing anything about it. Yeah. I want to be judicious with your time because you and I can talk all day. <laughs> yes, we can. You know, there's so much to talk about. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> there's one thing I want to ask you because I cannot determine whether what we are seeing as the visceral attitudes that are springing up all over the country, hate groups and people just in general being vicious toward one another, the death of civility, mm-hmm. is it coming in part from the fact that we are now in a media cycle where you choose the news you want? to hear 
you know, I, I grew up at a time that the six o'clock news was the time that you got the news and it really Walter did Cronkite. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And it really didn't seem to be so skewed politically one side or the other. They seemed to cover more across the board. Yeah. But today you can choose the news you like yeah. and get stuck there. And is that changing the narrative of America's views? Because we are what we eat. If oh. we are ingesting only one particular thing as the truth and we don't have a balanced opposing ideology, is that dividing the nation in a way that we have never seen before? Well, you've got to remember there's really fake news out mm-hmm. there. There are these sensational headlines, but you've got to look at the source. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going on social media and picking these things and thinking it's real. Look at the source. But I'm going to go back to the campaign. I'm going to go back to even when McCain and Palin were running against Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And it started then. We started hearing the us versus them. And then it started growing and growing and growing. We heard Romney talking about the, was it 49%? Mm-hmm. And then this campaign, it was full-blown, full-blown, full-on. And people were saying they heard the dog whistle. And there were a lot of words used. People were feeling code, but this administration doesn't realize that some of those words were code words. And the Congressional Black Caucus, when they walked in to that meeting with President Trump, they said, look, we don't like some of the words that you're using. He said, I don't like some of the words you're using. You know, the back and forth rhetoric. And the president, and this is from someone in the room who told me this, and the president never apologized, but they just looked at each other eye to eye. They were eye to eye. No one blinked, but they put it on the table. So he was concerned about the words that they were using, he, and they were concerned about the words that he had been using. But he has seemed he's not really using the words as much now. But the damage was done. You had people fighting on his tour, on his presidential campaign tour, beating people up. I mean, remember what happened in Chicago? I was so scared. I said, who are we now? Wait, I don't get it because Donald Trump comes from the private sector corporations where you do diversity training. It is not an insult against your intelligence to say that certain things mean certain things in certain communities. Why is there not a greater effort, not only in the Trump administration, but across the country to understand diversity rather than to critique it? If you're going to be a global person, you learn the customs of the country you're getting ready to go into or the people that you're getting ready to speak to. That's what you think. I mean, well-minded people, people who think trying to take it a step further and and be above the fray. That's what you would think. But think about this. You know, um, your man who's had it pretty much easy, even though he said, you know, he borrowed a small loan from his dad of a million dollars, you know. I mean, but, you know, he's had it pretty easy. Yeah, it's small loan. He's had it pretty easy. But he is the owner. He is the businessman. He doesn't have to take the training. His workers have to take the training. Think about that. But it also goes to the fact that I just believe it's not just him. I think we are in this like-minded. Oh, no, it's way past him. It's this like-minded group because we're seeing this. I mean, people are using the first press conference and what he did to the, um, the Orthodox Jewish reporter before me, before my question, when he told him, quiet and sit down. And then 
they're using another example is me, you know, with the, you know, do I know them all um, and, and bring the meeting together. And then you hear Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, talking about school choice. We were the prime example. The African-American community was the prime example of school choice. Well, we didn't have a choice to have school choice. We built the schools because we were not allowed to be in schools with white people. Then you have Ben Carson, who equates immigration and slavery, there are parallels. And um, we did not get a basket of fruit and see Lady Liberty when we were on the bottom of a ship and changed the shark pattern from Africa to here. So I just think wow. I just think their education is the key. And let's go a step further. Sean Spicer, mm-hmm. this week with Hitler. <sighs> I think, I mean... Bill he, O'Reilly. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, and the comments about... Uh, Maxine Waters' hair. hair. Yeah, exactly. You don't talk about a person because somebody can talk about you too. So, right. I mean, it's just... <sighs> let's get to something fun. <laughs> okay, let's get to something fun before we start crying. One thing, I'm hardened by the fact that early in our conversation, you sounded like you are seeing some changes and some shifts yes. in the rhetoric coming There's out of this hope. administration. That's good to hear because you have an up-close and personal look at something that we only see through the lens of a television screen. Yeah, he's changed his rhetoric. He's not what we see. He's not the same person that he was on the road. I see a difference. But I also see the fact that there's a party, a Republican Party, who's saying, okay, you're our president. We support you, but we're going to call you out when it's wrong. I mean, what did they do with ACA? They were like, no, we're going to lose a lot of people and seniors. We're going to have to pay a lot of money. They said, no. They put the brakes on it. And that is heartening for a lot of people in this nation. And then (laughs) the travel ban. You have judges who said, you know, this is not right. The checks and balances are working because people were concerned about the democracy, if the democracy could stand. And I think, again, he is realizing that he has to evolve to a certain extent. But the establishment that's already here is already saying, "Okay, we won, but we got to be very cautious. A lot of Republicans a lot of Republicans are feeling a burn, and there is a bit of buyer's remorse, and he knows it. So I think he realizes he's got to do a little shifting as well. Do you think the approval ratings had something to do with that oh, as well? Yes. Okay, all right. Oh, yo, yes. Let's talk about that for a minute because somebody who really pays close attention to those ratings, I think they have helped to bring these amendments to pass in the way that we yeah. approach the community at large. Not just these approval ratings, but remember Inauguration Day, January 20th, we saw Donald J. Trump take the oath of office and give his inauguration speech. The next day, we saw a couple women walking around, you know, in London, D.C., Detroit, Lansing, Los Angeles, New York, and they got a little upset about the numbers because the numbers rivaled their numbers. They saw the numbers he looks at numbers. Those numbers meant something. And Sean came out there, Sean Spice, the press secretary. That was the first day we saw him full bore. Mm-hmm. We saw him in all his glory going off about the numbers. And it wasn't a press briefing or anything. He just wanted the world to know, you know, our numbers were great, blah, blah, blah. So then again, the numbers are out again. This president sees it and he's like, look, there's possible shakeups on the horizon. Right. There's change in his attitude. 
they see it less than 100 days in. I believe there may be a renaissance day 100. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, a renaissance. It, 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 there's always some adjustments that are made in the first 100 days, but these have been really oh, radical. Yes. I need to get a that race because it's almost whiplash. <laughs> you know, as long as it gets corrected at the end of the day, I think people yeah. are starting to breathe a little bit better. Yeah. I want to spend the remaining time, two things I want to personally thank you for agreeing to host the panel, the think tank yeah. for the International Pastors and Leadership Conference. Fine, yeah. And I'm looking forward to that because we're going to be talking about politics, which you are so adept at understanding, and also the nuances that exist between politics and religion mm. when they collide, when they, when they clash, when they collide. And then how do we navigate between religion and politics? How much of an influence does it have? What are the lessons to be learned, both on the right and on the left, mm-hmm. as it relates to? Mm-hmm. That's something I want to talk to. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk yes. to you about this book. At you Mama's know? Knee. At Mama's Knee mm-hmm. by April Ryan. This is a very, very powerful, powerful notion. And I noticed early on that you started talking about the influence your mother had on yes. you. And then you talked as a mother about your daughters. Yeah. Then you go out and you start talking to mothers about race mm-hmm. in a black and white America. Mm-hmm. What did you learn, and how important is the role of the mother in this whole process? Well, the role of the mother is so important. We're the influencers. We set the tone. And I found, even from the first book, and it translated into this one, when you talk about race, it comes from one of the most sacred of places because it's a heart issue. After you legislate, Mm -hmm. after you create laws, what's left? You got the law in the books, and there's still some problems. Mm -hmm. As a man thinketh, so is he. Mm -hmm. So this book is born out of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. It's born out of my experience as a mother. It's born out of my experience as a White House correspondent. It happened, I started talking to my children a couple of years ago. You know, little girls, sugar and spice and everything nice. And I had to deal with reality. And I'm like, I would be remiss if I'm talking to presidents and leaders about issues of race and first-class citizenship for all people and not talk to my children. So when Tamir Rice died, my aunt who keeps my children, she um, told my daughter Grace to come into the house. She said, Grace, come in now. And Gracie didn't understand what it was. She thought she'd done something wrong. And Grace had a Nerf cannon gun, a little soft tip, little gun, playing in our backyard. Mm. She calls me at the White House. Mommy, what's going on? Our Pearl made me do this. I said, I'll talk to you. She said, is it true? Is it true? I said, what? She said, did a little boy get killed? I said, yes. Her little mind couldn't comprehend. Her little gray matter could not believe it. So when I came home a couple hours later, she's like, Mommy, is it true? It was still on her mind. So I said, yes. And she still didn't believe me. So what I did, I had to sit down as a mother with her. I showed her the tape so she would believe. But I gave her hope. I said, there is hope. I said, this happened, but we have to change the way we do things. And I let my oldest daughter understand. And then Freddie Gray died. The funeral, you know, I know a lot of people. I'm, I'm still from the Baltimore area, and I know a lot of people who are at the funeral. I know people who eulogized Freddie Gray. I knew people who were there, and I watched it from my office in the White House. I didn't go. And I'm kind of glad I didn't. I sat in the White House and watched, and one of the people who attended the funeral was Broderick Johnson. He was the head of My Brother's Keeper for the president, and he was also a Baltimore native, and he's also the um, 
cabinet secretary for the president, but he is a Baltimore native. And he had come back and we started emailing each other. It's like, how was the funeral and who was there? And, you know, and the next thing, you know, we see these images on the TV. And I'm like, what? I'm thinking it was someplace else. And I said, wait a minute, that place looks familiar. And the rocks were being thrown at the police. I'd frequented that church before, New Shiloh. Mm-hmm. The mall that the anchors could not get right, Mondaman Mall, the name that they couldn't say. I was like, that's Mondaman Mall. <laughs> My children were 11.5 miles away, and there was a concern that these kids would get on the subway and come out to where we were. Right. And my family started calling, come home, come home now. I'm working at the White House, 150 feet away from the president of the United States. Come home because we don't know what's happening. Home. How did you feel in that moment? I was in tears. The city that I loved, the city that loved me back, the city that taught me survival and taught me so much, the city where I learned news in was... In turmoil, this is not the Baltimore that I wanted people to see. This is not the Baltimore that I knew. So I get in my car, and the closer to home I drove, the harder it was to get there. I had old friends, new friends, family call me, and I was frantic. I had another mother pick up the girls because I couldn't get her. She's actually a minister. Her children are there. I'm a divorced mother. My ex-husband doesn't even live in the state. And my aunt was scared to leave because we didn't know what was happening in Baltimore, where it was going to pop off. So, You know, I just want to interject this because I'm sitting here and I'm seeing the stress on your face even mm-hmm. now remembering it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting across from April Ryan who's worked with the last Three, now four presidents, if you feel powerless. Hmm. I know. What about the mother who works at Walmart? So wait a minute. That's what I'm getting ready to get to. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you. So I'm driving at Mama's Knee, <laughs> Mothers and Race and Black and White. I'm driving back to Baltimore on a good day. It could be two hours each way between here and Baltimore, and it's only 50 miles. I'm trying to get to my child, and at the same time, there was a mother who was in the hairdresser. And she was like, oh, no, I told him not to go. She got up and went to Mondaman Mall and with the mask on, his face was covered, but she could see his eyes and his pants. She found her son and inflicted corporal punishment like me. She wanted to save her children. She found her son. Two mothers, two totally different scenarios trying to reach out for their children and save their children because of the hurt that was permeating, that was rippling out in the community. So, I don't know, Bishop Jakes, it was it was one of the craziest days of my life. 70% of my social media audience is women. Mm-hmm. 50% of my church mm-hmm. is women. A large percentage of that is black women. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those women who are listening at us right now? Mm. What do they say as mothers, not only reactively, after we get the call and we're rushing in the car, mm-hmm. proactively, what should we be saying to our children and to our daughters about the world they're coming up in I'm today? I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, and you, you hit the nail squarely on the head. Women are increasing in number. Minority women particularly are increasing in numbers, head of household mm-hmm. and sole provider. And I'm in that statistical group. I'm a divorced mother of two kids trying to make a living in another city. Mm-hmm. 
And when these things happen, I can't leave it to someone else to tell them. I can't leave it to someone else to say, well, this is this. I don't want them to be angry. I want them to know where we've come from, where we are, and the hope of tomorrow to prevent this from happening to you. I want them to know that there are other mothers out there, the reality that did give the talk. Because women are now giving the talk to Mm -hmm. their sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just a a father figure to a a male child. It is father or mother or father or mother figure to a boy and girl. And I want these parents to know that you have to give the talk. I talked to Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin. She gave her children the talk. I talked to Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner. She gave her children the talk. But I also talked to people like Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State, whose mother let her go to see Dr. King in Chicago when she was a kid through her youth ministry at the church where other white parents did not want their children to go. I talked to other people whose mothers inspired them, like former President Barack Obama. Even though she was a white woman, she knew her brown child would have to deal with issues of race and the complexities that this country has dealt with from slavery, Jim Crow to civil rights, and the fact that even with all of this stress and strain on this community, there were people who rose up through the ashes, like lawyers, doctors, preachers, teachers in this community to lead. I talked to people like Congressman John Lewis, the icon, whose mother's faith made him press on because she didn't want him to march with Dr. King. She didn't want him in the civil rights struggle from the racist South. Mm -hmm. You know, she said, don't rock the boat. We are right. But he took her faith. Mm -hmm. She would always say, you know, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread, but her faith is what guided him, even though she didn't want that to happen. And you got to read that story because it's a very interesting story. Harry Belafonte. Mm. Who said he was an activist before he was an entertainer. He said his mother told him, Never see an injustice and stand by. You have to do something about it. And even to this day, and before I talked to you today, um, I talked to him today, and he was talking about how he's very concerned with the lack of activism right now. And he said he's never seen a time like this. So a lot of people are talking to me, black, white, Mm Women, men, Senator Cory Booker, I mean, um, Lonnie Love, Erica Alexander, I mean, so many people, uh, Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley, remember? Yes, yes. Yes. So I talked to a lot of people because I wanted to find out if I was doing the right thing, if I was saying the right things to my kids. And I found out I was because I'm giving them the examples, the understandings and the history and the knowledge and the hope of a better day. Um, Lillian Carter, the mother of Jimmy Carter, she didn't talk. She led by example. And look at him today. You know, the strength of mothers permeates into the thoughts and processes of their children. You've covered the water from black women to white women. Mm -hmm. It is what you say. It is true. Then the hand that rocks the cradle rules Rules the world. world, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I rock two cradles. (laughs) Powerful, powerful discussion. This has just been an amazing time. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And thank you. For what you have done as an icon for my daughters Mm. and others who can look up and see you sitting in that crowd and say, I'm represented in that space. And the price you pay 
to be who you are is very, very important to our future. And it has just been a joy to listen to you. I want to say this to our listeners before we close today. If there were only one point that you could take away from this discussion between April Ryan and T.D. Jakes, take away this Get out of your comfort zone, away from, as the Bible said, away from your country and your kindred, your area code, your zip code, or what have you, your political party and persuasion. The thing that I think helps to make April Ryan who she is is because she talks to everybody, mm-hmm. black and white, yeah. Democrat and Republican. Yes. You don't really get a good worldview if you only talk to people whose background yeah. or color or culture is a reflection of your own. That's true. That will warp your perception. And go out and get a copy of At Mama's Knee. You yes. may learn some things that help you with your family, with your future, and with your neighbors. It's been a real joy talking to you today. Thank you for being here. I'm so honored. You just don't know. Bishop Jake's interview be woohoo. Oh, please. <laughs> it's the other way around. <laughs> I thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Yes. Thank you.